Well, good morning to you guys. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. The sun came out. It's a great day to gather together. Glad that you're here. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, And as Eric said earlier, if this is your first time here, we're grateful that God has brought you to gather with us this morning. Uh, We'd love to meet you after the service today. I'll tell you a little bit about how you can do that. We're having a little connect meeting uh, today. And so we'd love for you to come out to that uh, after we conclude our time together this morning. Um, we're going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians this morning, and so if you need a copy of the Bible, would you just raise your hand? Uh, some guys will bring a Bible around to you, so just keep your hand up till they find you, and know that that's our gift to you if you don't actually own a copy of the Scriptures. I uh, would love for you to take that home with you, or if you know somebody that needs a copy of the Scriptures, feel free to take that with you. That's what they're there for. Um, so we're going to be in 2 Corinthians this morning. Uh, before we open up to that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless this time in the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before You and just want to acknowledge that, that we are in Your presence. There's not a place we can go on the face of this earth to be away from You. And that can be both terrifying, uh, but so, so comforting. To know that the God of all creation is ever present with us. And so this morning, we pray that we would recognize your presence. We pray this morning that we would delight in your presence. And as we open up your word this morning to conclude this sermon series on freedom, we pray that the fact that you are a God who's with us would so overwhelm us today that we would be comforted and, and experience joy and peace in our life, no matter what our week has been like, no matter what our month has been like, no matter what our life has been like. And so we ask Holy Spirit today, that as your word is preached this morning, that you would do a encouraging work in our hearts. We pray that as we sit here this morning, that you do a transforming work in our hearts. And we pray that as we leave from this place, having heard your word preached, continuing to sing together today, that you would allow us to see the grace that you give us to continue to change, to become more like Jesus. And so, Lord, we just want to honor you today. We thank you that your word is a gift to us, and so we just submit ourselves to it now. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, something that every single person has in life are favorites. We all have favorite things, right? I mean, we could go around the room and talk about a favorite food that we have, or maybe a a favorite album that we like to listen to, uh, a favorite wine we like to drink, a favorite ice cream that we like to eat, a favorite book, a favorite movie. We could spend time doing that. It's always an interesting thing. If you're ever in community group, a great question to ask in community group, man, what's your favorite whatever? And you start to learn a little bit about people. Some things people, man, that's really weird. Um, But other things you're like, oh, me too, man, we're in the same, we got that in, in common with one another. But the reason we have favorites, when we have favorites, I mean, they're, they're things that we go back to over and over again. We enjoy them so much that we don't mind watching the movie over again. We don't ra- mind reading the book over again or ordering the same thing over again because we so enjoy it. And part of enjoying it is telling other people about it because we enjoy it and we want them to be able to enjoy it as well. Well, today I'm going to walk us through one of my favorite texts in the Bible. It's a a text that that God really, it's been in the Bible for some 2,000 years, but about 14 years ago, uh, God brought it to my attention. And uh, it just has been something that's continued to captivate me and encourage me as I heard someone preach on it a while ago, and just going back to it over and over again. And so this morning as we conclude this series that we've been in, talking about freedom, 
uh, a series we've been over the last few weeks talking about this freedom that you and I either are offered or given in and through Christ. We either have it because we know Jesus or it's there for us to take if we don't yet know Jesus. And we've been trying to understand what it looks like for you and I in the day-to-day of our life to really experience and walk in this freedom. And so this text that we're going to look at today, I I believe is going to help us to kind of round this series out to continue to experience the freedom that Jesus gives us. In this text, as we look at it, I think we'll see that it's both humbling and hopeful. It's a humbling text and a hopeful text. And so today I want to look at this particular text so that we can focus on the freedom to change. The freedom to change. And my hope is that today, God, by His grace and through the preaching of His Word, will bring freedom in your life and in my life from being fakers, from being pretenders, freedom from fear, freedom from from feeling stuck, freedom to be who you are in Christ, a son or daughter of the living God redeemed and set free. So let's go ahead and jump into our text this morning, and may God bless the preaching of his word. Again, 2 Corinthians, we're going to be in chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So go ahead and flip open to that. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 18, and taking a look, spending some time here in the words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter many, many years ago. He wrote it to a specific church uh, or churches in a city called Corinth. Uh, But this is God's word. It's not an old dead book. And so that means it's for you and for me today as well. So here are Paul's words to the Corinthians and to you. Starting in verse 7, he says, Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now the book of 2 Corinthians is an interesting book. As I said, Paul is writing this, like much of the New Testament, it's a letter. And he's writing it to a specific group of people, this collective of churches here in this city of Corinth. And, and the main focus of this letter, though, is that Paul is seeking to defend his ministry. He's seeking to defend his apostleship because the Corinthians have started to believe uh, through the influence of other people, just through their own flesh, that Paul isn't quite cut out to do what he is called to do. They start to believe, well, he's not such a good preacher. He's not such a good leader. He's not such a good apostle. 
He had issues, and he, must, he suffered too much to really be a true servant of God. If God was really with him, he wouldn't suffer so much. And they thought that they needed and they deserved someone better to lead them. And so in this letter, it's probably one of the most personal letters that Paul writes. Out of all of his letters, it's one of the most personal letters that he writes because in it you really see his heart. You really see emotions, these emotions that Paul has, and really a love for Jesus and a love for the church. And he's really sharing his life with them. And so as we come to this text today, uh, what we're going to look at and what we're going to see is that Paul is seeking to establish not a confidence in himself, but a confidence in Christ and Him crucified. And so Paul jumps in at this point in chapter 3 to bring a comparison. And the thing he's comparing is glory. If you were reading along with me, you heard it and you read and saw how many times Paul says the word glory. And so Paul's seeking to bring this comparison of glory to show the Corinthians and show us the reality of the hopefulness that you and I have. The reality of the hopefulness that we have that it comes through the freedom that was purchased for us and given to us in and through Jesus. So a good question to ask first then is what is glory? I mean, that's a word maybe you've heard a lot. We sing it in songs. We read it in the scriptures. It sounds maybe like a churchy word, but we don't really always know exactly what it means. And glory is a bit of a difficult word for us to define. In the, in the Hebrew, glory really means heaviness or weightiness. And so what we're talking about, we're talking about glory. It's, it's ascribing value to something. It's this, this idea that there's, uh, that there's something amazing and bright. It's a manifestation of God's infinite and majestic nature. There is a weightiness to who God is. There's a heaviness to who God is. There's an awesomeness, an overwhelming awesomeness to who God is. And so when we say something is glorious, what we're saying is, is that, that thing is great, it's majestic, it's awesome, it's weighty. When we give glory to something, when we talk about I want to give glory to God, or I give glory to a particular thing, we're ascribing those characteristics to that person or that thing. Greatness, majesty, perfection. Something we're going to see in this text this morning is that the freedom that Paul is calling us to is freedom that centers in and is rooted in the glory of grace in the gospel. Let me say that again. The freedom that Paul is calling us to, what he's trying to encourage us with this morning in this text, is freedom that centers in and is rooted in the glory of grace in the gospel. The awesomeness, the weightiness, the majesty, the greatness of the gospel of grace. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, just a few verses later, Paul uh, is talking about people who do not believe in Christ. And what he says about them is, is they can't believe because their eyes have been blinded from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so Paul's equating glory and gospel, glory and grace with one another. For those that don't know Christ, there's something over the, the eyes of their heart not to see the radiant beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for them. And what we'll see again in this text is one Puritan pastor says is that grace is glory begun and glory is grace perfected. And so we're going to break this text down into three chunks, three points this morning. Glory that exceeds, glory that removes, and glory that frees. So let's look at our first point. This is in verses 7 through 11. Glory that exceeds. What's going on here? What, what's Paul talking about here? Paul's comparing the glory of the law to the glory of the gospel. 
And so to do that, he's referring back to Moses. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai and he, and he received the law, of God, law from God to give to his people. The ways of God. The way to live in relationship with God and in relationship with other people. That's what the law is. And so he receives this, this law from God on this mountain and he goes back down to share this law with his people. But when he comes back down, if we go back to Exodus chapter 34, we see this. As he comes back down this mountain, his face is literally glowing. I mean, he, he's coming down. He doesn't even realize it. He's coming down. He's got his tablets uh, that have been carved in stone. He's got this law, and he's coming to present it to the people. And they're, they're terrified because his face is glowing. This isn't just like a bad sunburn. Like, it's radiating. And so he, he recognizes this, and he, he has this experience. His face is glowing because he's seen the glory of the Lord. He's been in relationship so close to God that even seeing the backside of God's glory has made, Paul, made Moses' face literally shine. So Paul's making this comparison here. He's saying, look, the law had glory. So much glory that Moses' face shined. The law, God's ways to live, was glorious. But it wasn't a lasting glory. It was a fading glory, a glory that was coming to an end. The reason for that is because the law really became a ministry of death for God's people. Because it couldn't bring about life. It was unable to do that. The ministry of of the law brought about condemnation. It brought condemnation because you and I and God's people throughout all of time have been unable and unwilling to walk in obedience to God's good ways. We have no, the law itself has no power to set us free from our own rebellion. It's what we saw in Romans 7 and Romans 8 that we looked at a few weeks ago. The law is not bad, But our sinful nature has perverted the law to twist it and turn it. And it exposes the reality that we are disobedient, that we don't want anything to do with God. We want to be the kings of our own lives. And so what Paul's saying is not that the law isn't glorious. He's saying what had glory has now been surpassed by something with greater glory. If there's glory in that, if there's glory in the law, then how much more glory is there in this? The ministry of righteousness. What's the ministry of righteousness? It's just another term for the good news of grace, of the gospel. He calls it the ministry or the work of righteousness because it's not anything that we've done. It's what Christ has done for us. And this is something we have to come back to over and over and over again, that what Christ did for you and for me is that he lived a life that you could not live. He obeyed God's law perfectly. And as he went to that cross, as he was nailed to the cross for nothing that he did wrong, he took on your sin and he, in exchange for that, gave you his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. Everything was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, for some of us, this is new information. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here this morning. But for a lot of us, this isn't new and where we find ourselves, though, is that we're not resting in the reality of exceeding glory. We're not resting in that reality. We tend back to our own doing, to chasing after other less glorious things other than the insane glory that that once you and I were enemies of God, eternally separated from Him, yet God made a way to bring you into relationship with Him, to call you His child, and that came through the perfect life, the substitutionary death, and the very real resurrection of Jesus. See, in Christ, you are no longer condemned. You are seen as righteous. That is surpassingly and exceedingly glorious because there's nothing you could do to earn that. 
There's nothing you could do to obtain that. It was given to you freely in and through Christ. And so Paul is trying to remind the Corinthians, look, that's what my ministry is about. That's what I want you to reflect on. That's the reality I want you to rest on. If the law had glory and it was being brought to an end, how much more will that which is permanent have glory? Permanent. That's huge. That means God's grace towards you never lessens. It it, it never leaves in your life. It is a permanent reality because Christ declared it is finished. See, the gospel, the glory of the gospel is a glory that exceeds. It exceeds anything else that is remotely glorious. And so Paul's saying, don't forget that. That's what I'm all about. But it's not just a glory that exceeds. It's also a glory that removes. Our second point, verses 12 through 16. Paul says then, since we have such a hope, A hope in this permanent, lasting glory, a surpassing glory. We are bold. Bold, not like Moses. He's bringing this comparison again and again. The Corinthians think, look, Paul, you're not so eloquent. Or you're not eloquent enough. You're not wise enough. You're not skilled enough. And Paul says, look, this isn't about me. This isn't about me. I'm not trying to promote myself in this. This isn't about my gifts and abilities. It's not about thinking that I am great. I'm not trying to assert myself in this. This is because I'm bold because my God is great. And His grace is great. And He isn't like Moses because when Exodus 34 again, after Moses comes down and his face is glowing, the text tells us that he puts a veil over his face. He literally covers his face up because he doesn't want to be a distraction to the people and because the the glow on his face starts to fade away. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. It doesn't remain. And so he didn't want the people to see that. And so Paul takes that and he uses it as a metaphor. The veil wasn't just on Moses' face to hide this fading glory. The veil was on the hearts and the minds of the people. Because all they heard in the giving of the law was that they had to do a lot of stuff, but they missed the lawgiver. They missed the good God who called them to himself to live in relationship with him. See, I think if we've been around the church for a while, we need to hear this because our temptation is to do the same thing. Not to be lovers of unmerited grace. Not to be lovers of the freedom that we have in Jesus. But we, we are tempted to become lovers of our duty. Lovers of our performance. Lovers of of our personal piety, of what we do, of how much Bible we read, of what songs we know, of how much Scripture we've memorized. Lovers of self-righteous religion that's all completely disconnected from the One who alone is righteous. We're tempted to put Jesus on the shelf, to to give Him a head nod, to acknowledge His importance and His reality in life, but then to very quickly go away from that and seek to do things on our own. And we can be tempted to believe that life is found in the law and our doing instead of the good news that life is found in the one who did and fulfilled the law. And so when that happens, the veil remains. It blinds us. So whenever the law of God is read, whenever a sermon is preached that calls you to action, that calls you to do something, when you're reading your Bible and and there's a command to follow, What ends up happening when that veil remains, when we've forgotten Jesus, when we've forgotten the glory that exceeds, when we've forgotten the glory that removes, is that we hear duty, not delight. We hear do and not done. And so we start down that trail again and we forget about the fact of the glory of the grace of the gospel of Jesus. But Paul says in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord... To Jesus, the veil is taken away. 
See, the glory of the gospel that God accomplished in Jesus what you and I could never do on our own, it removes the blinders, it removes the barriers that keep us from truly knowing and experiencing God in all his power, in all his glory, in all his grace, in all his mercy, and seeing him and enjoying him forever. See, the glory that removes reminds me that my righteous standing with God is secure, not based on anything that I do, but always on what Jesus has done for me. How can he do that? It's because, as he says in Colossians 2, he, he canceled the record of death that stood against you. You have sin, and sin is serious, but, but God canceled that record of death that stood against you, and he nailed it to a cross. He nailed it to a cross all its legal demands, he set it aside, being fulfilled in Jesus. And again, Jesus declared, it is finished. See, the glory of the gospel removes the requirement of my performance in order to be known and to know God, to love and be loved by God. And church, that's amazing and freeing news. As one pastor says, on my worst days of sin and failure, The gospel encourages me with God's unrelenting grace toward me. On my best days of victory and usefulness, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not mine. Whether you have a great day or a terrible day, the gospel brings you back to that freeing reality that has been completed in Jesus, this surpassing and removing glory. And so if you find yourself today sitting there trying to earn acceptance from God by doing something for God, or you've just completely rejected everything that you think has to do with religion because it's just too much rule following, let me implore you this morning. Let me implore you this morning to see the glory that removes all barriers and all barricades and simply says to you now, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus with all of your past with nothing in your hands, no deeds, no accolades, no accomplishments, just you as you are. And let the glory of the gospel that exceeds be the glory that removes and brings you home and brings you into relationship with the living God. But this isn't the end of the story. It's not the end of the story of the reality of the gospel. It's not the end of Paul's response to his critics. Because see, the gospel has a glory that exceeds and a glory that removes, but it also has a glory that frees. That's our last point, the glory that frees, verses 17 through 18. Let me just read this again for us. Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The reason I wanted to go through those first few verses, 7 through 16, is to get to verses 17 and 18, because verses 7 through 16 set up the glorious reality, the truth of verses 17 and 18. The gift of righteousness in Jesus exceeds the law and all of its demands. What God required from you, he gave to you in Jesus. The glory of grace that removes the blinders of trying to earn favor instead gives favor completely unmerited. Paul's established those two things. But then this is what he's saying to you in these last two verses. God does not leave you where he finds you. He doesn't leave you where he finds you. He purposes to bring you all the way home and to make you brand new. 
See, church, I think this might be one of the most underplayed, underrealized realities of the glory of the gospel of grace. It has a glory that frees you and me to actually change. See, the ministry, the work of the gospel will not allow men and women to remain unaltered. It won't allow you to remain unaltered. Change will happen in your life. Man, we're good at faking, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're good at putting up facades. And we do it with all kinds of things. We do it with our appearances. We do it with our words. We do it with our behavior. We, we, we put up these facades. I mean, you know what a facade is? It's a fake front. It's, it's something put up on a, on a house or other things to make it look like there's something there that's not actually there. Most houses that have brick fronts are brick facades. They're not actually built out of brick. It's, it's supposed to look like something's there, but it's not actually there. And we're so good in our spiritual lives of putting up facades, putting up fake fronts. And we, we act like we're okay just the way we are. We, we seek to appear more godly than we actually are. Because we think that's what other people want from us. We think that's what the church demands from us. And if that's the reality of our community, then we have erred greatly. We hide, we cover, we divert attention away from our pain and our brokenness and sin that remains. And so Paul says something to us about that here. He says, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. See, through the gospel, God saves you at your worst, but he doesn't leave you there. He doesn't leave you there. He loves you too much for that. So Paul says, there is freedom in Christ for you, and this freedom is a freedom to change. Check out what he says in verse 18 again. Let me just read this one more time. This is a a great scripture to come back to and just meditate on. He says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. If you have a pen and you're okay with writing in your Bible, underline it, circle these few words. We all and our being. We all and our being. See, what Paul's saying here when he says we all, this is a universal statement for God's people. If you are in Christ, if you are a child of God, this includes you. You don't have to know a certain amount of things. You don't have to perform in a certain way. You don't have to have a particular set of gifts. You have to simply know God and be known by him. We all. And so if you're sitting here this morning saying, well, yeah, it's everybody but me. No, this is all-inclusive. If you are in Christ, we all. Then he says, our being. Our being. This is an interesting statement. It's a, it's a definite reality for all of God's people, and it's an ongoing process. Our, defi- there's some definitive thing, our being. We, this is happening right now in your life. But the other interesting thing about this is it's a reality to be something that ultimately is done to us. There's a passiveness to this in the original language. It's something being done to us. We, we can't do this. We can't be this on our own strength or ability. So what are we all being? We're being transformed, is what Paul says. We're changing, being changed into the image of Christ, becoming more like Jesus. See, Paul is declaring to you and to me this gospel reality. If you are in Christ, we are all being and therefore will be changed We will not and cannot look the same when we've turned to Christ by faith. But the law doesn't change us. It can't do that. Grace does that. Paul says that in Titus chapter 2. It's grace 
that enables us to change. This means that the glory of the grace of the gospel is not simply for our salvation, it's also for our transformation. Or to use some theological terms, Jesus' life and his death and resurrection are not just for our justification, but also our sanctification. And our sanctification, becoming more like Christ, is dependent on our justification being made right with God. Those are theological terms, but they're good terms to know and understand. They're not the same thing, sanctification and justification, being made like Christ and being with Christ, being made right with God through Christ. They're not the same thing, but they're inseparable things. We can't have sanctification without our justification. We can't become more like Jesus until we're united to Jesus. And being united to Jesus enables us to become more like him. This is so important. If we go back to the end of verse 17, he says there is freedom then because of this. So circle that word, underline it, put some stars around it. The gospel of grace doesn't lessen sin. I don't want us to ever think that. The gospel of grace doesn't lessen sin. It puts it in the right perspective. It doesn't lessen it. It puts it in the right perspective because sin is awful. It's catastrophic. It's heinous. It's treason against God. It's insurrection. It's rebellion against God. It puts us at enmity with him and it deserves death because God is completely holy and perfect and we are not. But in Christ, God has set you free from the guilt of sin, which means God has set you free from the power of sin in your life. See, the freeing work of the Spirit begins by showing us where we are enslaved to sin. It highlights the grossness. It highlights the deadness. It highlights the dankness of our sin, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't just say, well, here's where you're messing up. Here's where you're wrong. Here's where you're not like Jesus, so get your act together and figure it out. No, the Spirit shows us a better way. It shows us God's way, the way of Jesus, the way with Jesus, the way purchased and made possible because of Jesus and the reality that I am His and He is mine. My debts, my sin are now His and all of His righteousness now mine. See, the glory that frees is not freedom from fighting the sin that remains. It's freedom to fight the sin that remains. But here's where we start to get off track, I think, as believers, as followers of Christ. We, we get that and we know, okay, I'm gonna, supposed to fight this sin that remains. But we start to try and just do it on our own. What does he say at the end of verse 18? Who does this? Who does this? Is it you? No, he says, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our fighting is not self-realized. It's not manufactured within us. It's wholly dependent on our union with Jesus and the gift of His Spirit. In the moment you and I try to muscle up on our own to do this, to recognize some area or issue in our life that we need to see rooted out of our life, we just try and do it on our own, we're dead in the water. We'll fail time and time again. Remember, you are being changed, but it's a change that's exacted from without to affect you within. At my house, we have two full bathrooms on the, uh, the main floor of our house. And, and there are times when uh, all of our kids are, are taking baths or showers at the same time. So Owen might be in, in our bathroom taking a shower, and, and Isaac or Emery might be in the bathtub getting a bath. And they, they're, they're there to get clean, right? And so they're in there, and they've got the soap and the water and the washcloth. But the source of being able to get clean is the same for all of them, no matter where they find themselves in the house. They have to have running water 
coming into our house to actually be able to get clean. It doesn't matter what bathroom that they're in. It doesn't matter how much they want to get clean. It doesn't matter all the tools that they have, that they have their washcloth, that they have some soap. If they don't have water, the water source, then there's not going to be any baths. There's not going to be any showers taking place. See, the gospel of grace and the freedom to change is a change that you receive and a change in which you participate. It happens as a coordinated effort. God calls you to obey, but it's from a single power source. It's from the Spirit. You have to be united to Jesus. So here's a question for us then. The glory that frees you to change, how does it actually happen then? How does this transformation take place? Well, Paul tells us. He says, we all with unveiled faces. Because of Christ, the veil has been removed. Because of Christ, we can see clearly now. There's nothing hindering our ability to see anymore. We're no longer blind. The eyes of our hearts have been opened to see that a life apart from Christ only leads to death. But life with Christ leads to eternal life and true life. But he says something so important here. He says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. To behold something means to look at it, to set our gaze on it, to be locked in on it. In the sense of this word has the idea of seeing it in a mirror. In fact, some English translations say reflecting as in a mirror instead of beholding. Have you ever been to a fun house at a fair? You know, that, you know what I'm talking about where you go into those houses and they got like the weird walkways and hallways and leaning walls. And every fun house is not a fun house unless it has those weird mirrors in them. You know, the ones that make you look really big or really tall and skinny or stretched out or disproportionate. See, when we approach change and we think about becoming, coming before a mirror, a lot of us are just looking at circus mirrors. And when we look in those mirrors and what we see is these, these weird images, maybe the way we really feel, we feel stretched out. We feel disproportionate. We feel wrong. We feel weird. And we realize we're not in a fun house. We're in a broken down house. And this is where a lot of us struggle with change. We see where change is needed in our life. And that's God's grace to you. That's part of the work of the Spirit in you. But we just don't know what we're supposed to do. We see where change is needed, but we're looking at the wrong image. See, too often I think we look for change or are told to change through a mirror of self-will. Just self-will that doesn't promote freedom but only gives you more bondage. And instead, Paul is calling us to the glory of grace and the gospel to look for change in the mirror of God's glory in Christ. Paul is saying to you and to me as we place ourselves before the mirror of God's grace and gaze on the beauty of Jesus and the glory of Christ and all of His awesomeness and His perfection, His sacrifice and His resurrection, that's where transformation will take place. We see Christ in His glory, and then we see ourselves in Christ. The New Living Translation translates this as see and reflect the glory of the Lord. In other words, as we look to Jesus, we start to look like Jesus. As we look to Him, we start to look like Him. So how do we behold? How do we gaze on the glory of Christ? We do that through the means of grace that's give, that are given to us through His creation. We can look around and see the glory of God in all of creation. We see it in His Word. As we read His living and active Word, we see the glory of grace given to us in the Gospel of Christ. And we see God's glory and the grace of Christ in His church. This is God's gift to you to gather together. Not to be a bunch of disconnected individuals, but to be a family of people together that you can look around, you can see your brothers and sisters engaging, receiving, reflecting. As you sing, 
as you come forward to take communion, as you hear the words that Christ's body was broken for you and his blood shed for you, you're getting to partake in and behold the glory of Christ. And so the more and more we do that, the more and more we see our need for Jesus. But see, if we're doing any of those things or all of those things, if we're reading our Bibles, if we're singing the songs, if we're gathering with the church, if we're sharing the gospel with non-believers, the people who don't yet know Christ, if we're serving people, yet we're not seeing Jesus, then all that stuff is meaningless. All those things need to point us back to Christ, to behold Him. See, too often, I think, in the church, our pursuit of holiness, our pursuit of Christ-likeness is absent of Christ Himself. So what happens when we live in light of glory that exceeds and glory that removes and the glory that frees? Well, Paul says we are transformed into the same image, Christ's image, from one degree of glory to another. And this might, might be the best part of, of all of this text, the most freeing part of it all. Paul says that the glory of the gospel frees us to be able to change, but here you notice what he says is it happens incrementally. It happens incrementally from one degree to another. I call this sermon, excuse me, freedom to change because you and I need to hear this. We need to be reminded that we are free. And in our freedom, we are free. We are able to to change. And that change comes through the freeing power of the glorious gospel of grace. But I also call this sermon freedom to change because when you and I actually recognize this, it shapes our community. Provides something critical for us as a church. Because we're not a bunch of disconnected individuals. We are called to be in one another's lives. And so this freedom to change also gives us a freedom from facades and faking. From putting up that false front. Because see, what Paul is saying about you and me today is everyone knows. Everyone knows. They know that you're not complete yet. They know that you have sin in your life still. Or else Paul would have to write this. That we all are being transformed. That means there's work to be done. We can go to Ephesians 4 and see that until everybody looks like Jesus, we're going to keep being together as the church. So everyone already knows. Everyone knows you're not fully like Christ yet. So what that does is it gives us freedom to be real and honest about the junk in our lives. It gives us freedom to to share the jacked upness of who we are. Because we all know You were so jacked up that the law could not free you from that. Jesus had to die for you because of that. That's how messed up you are. So there's your good news this morning. That's how messed you up you are, but the good news is that Jesus paid for that messed upness. He was crucified for that. So now we can look at anybody in this room and not wondering, you're not measuring yourself like, well, how, how much more like Jesus are they than me? That's not what we're called to do. We're called to place Christ in front of one another so we can be real and honest with each other. And at the very same time, can we also be gracious and patient with one another? See, I think we all know that, right? We all know that everybody's messed up. We all know the reality of our own lives that we're not fully like Christ yet. Man, sometimes we can be so ungracious, so impatient with one another when we actually are bold enough to share what's going on in our hearts and our lives. And what we receive instead of grace is judgment. We're actually going to talk about that in a few weeks as we jump back into the Sermon on the Mount. So we need to understand here that the 
The glory of the grace and the gospel comes to free you from your faking, free you from your pretending, free you from your earning, freeing, free, freeing you from pursuing anything of lesser glory. So walk in freedom, knowing that you've already been exposed. Jesus had to die for you. He had to die for you. Do you remember why Paul is writing this letter? Because people think he is second class, that he has issues, that he has weaknesses. And do you know what Paul's response here and throughout this letter is? He's basically writing back to the Corinthians saying, you think I'm unqualified? You think I'm unimpressive as a leader, as a pastor? You think that I'm weak? You think that I'm a sinner? Oh, friends, it's far worse than you think. It's far worse than you think. See, as you and I behold Christ more and more in all of his perfection and beauty, in all of his radiant glory, we also come to realize how much we are not like him. But in those same moments when our sin seems so big, when we're setting our gaze on Jesus, beholding creation, reading his word, gathering with the church, and we set our gaze and we behold this glory, we're overwhelmed to see that our Savior is yet bigger, that he's yet greater, that he's yet more glorious, more grand, that he's more, that there is still more grace. Now, the enemy hates this. A 16th century pastor named Richard Sibb said this, Oh, when the time of temptation comes, and the hour of death, and conflict with conscience, and all together that may discourage. So what he's saying there, let me interpret his English for you. He's basically saying when you have those moments where you're just, you're, you're fighting, you know the temptation's there, your conscience is battling with, with yourself. Do I do what I know God's called me to do or do I do what my flesh is calling me to do? This is what he says happens. Satan will bestir himself. I mean, Satan's going to get active. He sees you struggling and he gets active. And this is what he says. He's cunning and eloquent and will focus completely upon sin, especially in the time of despair. See, Satan bestirs himself. He gets active not to just continue to tempt you, but just to focus on your sin. You know you're going to do this. You do it every time. You know you're going to fail again, so just go ahead and do it. You know you're going to get angry with your kids again. You're never going to get past this. You're never going to walk away from the computer. You're never going to use the money God's given to you in a way that's honoring to him. You're never, you're never, you're never, and Satan just focuses in on that. But this is what Sib says, but you... But you, follower of Christ, you, beholder of God's glory, you who set your gaze on Jesus, be as cunning. Be as cunning to focus upon mercy, glorious mercy. See, brothers and sisters, Christ does not dole out grace to you in bite-sized pieces. He's not reluctant or begrudgingly giving you grace. God is not a grace miser. He's a grace spender. He's a grace lavisher. He, he has a storehouse. He is a storehouse, an unending storehouse of grace and mercy for you. It's a river that never dries up. It doesn't lessen. It only increases. As you become closer to Christ, you recognize how much you're not like him. But the grace continues to grow. There's nothing in your life, past, present, or future, that God's grace is not sufficient for to bring about transformation, to bring about change. It's grace upon grace upon grace, and it's found in Jesus. 
So let me encourage you this morning, if you don't get anything else from this, is this, never be discouraged from going to Jesus. Never be discouraged from going to him. No matter how long it's been, or even if it's every day and it's a part of your rhythm of your life, never be discouraged from going to Christ. You have been given freedom to change, and in that freedom, freedom from facades and fakery. So this means that we do take our sin very seriously. We take it very seriously as God's people, but we do so from a place of freedom and promise and transforming glory. And so as brothers and sisters, let's remember, let's be consistent to continue to set Jesus in front of one another. To set Jesus in front of one another, not to shame each other, not to ridicule one another, not to create a a place of fear of failure that you're not going to measure up. Everyone knows. But let's set Jesus in in front of one another to remind each other that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Earlier I said that this text is humbling and hopeful. It's humbling because it calls out the reality that we are not self-sovereigns, we're not self-made, we're not self-actualized people. It calls out the reality that we are not yet complete in our continual and desperate need for help. It removes all spiritual pride and boasting and personal holiness and says that apart from exceeding, removing, freeing glory, we are completely lost. But it's hopeful because it also declares over you this morning that change has taken place, is taking place, and will take place. Now I know sometimes you don't feel that way. Because sometimes I don't feel that way. Whatever struggle it happens to be with my pride or anger, control or lust, and there's just times that just seem to be stuck. I seem to be stuck. I don't see this transformation happening. Brother and sister, set your gaze on transforming glory. Transforming glory that brings about freedom. Because the good work God has begun in you, he will bring to completion. Sib says again this, if there is any goodness then, any blessed change in us, let us be comforted. Anything that you see, for he who has brought us to the beginning of glory will never fail till he has brought us to perfect glory in heaven and there our change will rest. God is going to do this work in you. You know, I don't notice when my kids are growing I don't notice that that Owen has gotten taller in the moment. But I can look at the pants that he wore last year that he's trying to wear again this year and recognize those two or three inches at the bottom aren't looking too hot. So I see this change, but I don't see it in the moment. I see it over time. See, change into Christ's likeness in a moment oftentimes can seem unnoticeable, but in a lifetime, it's enormous. Because in the moments that make up a lifetime, where you're seeking to walk in the freedom of grace and glory, to set your gaze on Jesus, little by little, His glory is attaching itself to you, like little droplets of water on a misty day. So be encouraged and be free. And my hope is that we would be a community, that we would be a family where you are free to change. No arbitrary timelines. No No arbitrary timelines, no matter how long it takes, that we are instead just being consistent reminders and helping each other along the way to follow Jesus.
patient and longing for the future version that God has promised to each of us that one day, one day, change will rest when we're with him forever. So let's help each other take the sin that remains in freedom, to take that sin remains, to help each other to go before the cross and be reminded that it was paid for in full there. And to take that sin sin that remains and go before the empty tomb and be reminded that it has no lasting power over you. That's what God calls us to do in one another's lives, to help one another walk in and live in freedom. Grace is glory begun, and glory is grace perfected. So praise God for his church. Praise God for his grace. Praise God for his glory, and praise God for his freedom. Amen? We're going to come to the communion table now. And as I said, this sermon concludes our series that we've been walking through over these last few weeks, focusing on freedom. But I don't want it to be the end for you. I want it just to be the beginning. That this would be a catalyst for you, both personally and for us corporately as a church, to, to be people who are marked by and proclaimers of the freedom that's given to us in Jesus. And so this meal that we're about to eat, the shared bread and cup, we we do it every single week as a church, and we're going to continue to do it every single week as a church until Jesus comes again. It's a meal that will continue to point us to who Jesus is and who we are in Jesus. People once enslaved to sin and the shame that comes with that, but have now been set free. And so may this meal today refresh your soul knowing that Jesus is risen, that he's alive, and he is an active advocate for you before the throne of grace. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And so as you eat and drink, may you behold the glory of Jesus in this, your Savior, your King, and be amazed that in him there is no condemnation for you, and that in him you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning to take communion because this bread and this cup don't give you that freedom. Jesus gives that to you. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we don't want you to eat the bread and eat the cup. We want you to actually take Christ today. He's offering himself to you today. So just hang out in your seat and acknowledge your need for him and call on him to save you and tell somebody around you so that we can start walking with you in that. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the front or to the back and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we just give you thanks. We give you thanks that your word is full, full of truth, full of reminders of the reality that you are a good and loving Father, who has sent your Son to set us free. To set us free from our sin, to set us free from ourselves. That we're no longer captive. And so, Father, we just pray that you'd help us to see your glory and the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that as we see your glory, as we set our gaze on your glory, that we would be free. That we would walk in more and more freedom in our life. Freedom, knowing that we have freedom to change, that you are changing us, and then freedom to be, not be fake anymore, not pretend, but be honest and real with one another. Knowing that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, that your glory is permanent, your grace is permanent in our lives. So help us as your people to rest in that reality and to encourage one another in that reality as we go from this place today. We praise you and we thank you in the name of Christ and we pray this in his name, amen.